Before we get started today, I want to give a special thanks to Hashtag Paid, our top sponsor this week. Uh, I want to say goodbye to influence. I want to say hello to creators. You can get your consumers talking about your brand, buying your product with creator marketing. Uh, find out why creator marketing works up to four times better uh, for your customer acquisition dollars by signing up with Hashtag Paid. Go to hashtagpaid.com. Thanks very much. There's never been a better time to be a direct-to-consumer business. Join us as we uncover the strategies and scaling secrets of the world's most disruptive brands and agencies. This is DTC by Pilot House. Hello and welcome to D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick along with co-host Kyle Guilfoyle. Today we are super lucky to have Matt Halfhill, the founder of Nice Kicks. Now Matt founded uh, Nice Kicks in 2006 to provide shoe enthusiasts a community where they can stay up to date on sneaker and streetwear news. Today Nice Kicks has over 4 million Instagram followers and it's one of the leading voices in the streetwear sneaker industry. So Matt was actually one of our first subscribers. I think he subscribed within the like the first week of D2C and I noticed his email right away, being a big fan of sneakers and amateur hype beast myself. Uh, and so I wanted to reach out to him to discuss a little bit about the mechanics of his content business, the future of the drop model, uh, as well as the aftermarket model that sneakers really benefit from, uh, some of his branded collabs that he's been working on, as well as his thoughts about the recent $2 billion sale of Supreme uh, and what that might mean for the sneaker business as a whole. Uh, welcome to the D2C podcast, Matt. How are you doing? I am great. I'm great. Um, I'm actually going to drop a little surprise that I don't know that you are aware of, but uh, the blog launched in 06, but Nice Kicks was actually founded in 2002 um, at, in Victoria, BC. I was a senior, to grade 12 rather, at Claremont Secondary. And for the first two and a half years, I operated it from my parents' basement in Broadmead area. And as long as well as I had a office for a while over on, oh gosh, what street was it? It was off of government and oh, what was the name of that? Pen Penderton? Pemberton? Yeah. One of those. Th yeah. Yeah. That That's where I had an office. Um, that was an old building space in there, but uh, yeah, moved to Austin in uh, 04 and then and then re transitioned from e-commerce to, to media in 06. And that's where what we're known as now this is a media outlet so that's where I, almost all the stories are of six but i started in victoria bc i did not know that that's really interesting i didn't know that there was a victoria connection there oh yeah uh, can, can you take us back to those to like to, to basically just because this is a business model that we're not as familiar with we're creating a media right. we're trying to create a media empire here um but why don't we start with sort of like your hero's journey a little bit give us the overview of how you started and kind of what it's become and we'll go from there Yes. So I started out working at Athletes World at Mayfair Mall um, there in Victoria, um, store 648. And I worked, it was my first job in high school. And I started actually um, before, while I was working there and before I had I'd bought and sold things on eBay. And my manager at the time, uh, Joe Scalzo, thought that he needed some items to move. And he's like, well, shoot, if I can't make enough sales locally, maybe this, this internet kid could maybe make sell some of the shoes that are in the store. Um, e-commerce was not a thing. Nike did not sell items on e-commerce in Canada. Um, there was no online seller. There was no online retailer in Canada, actually, um, for shoes. But uh, so I started buying clearance items off of the tables at Athletes World. Um, and he told me, like, look, if they don't sell, you can just bring them back and do a return. 
And uh, so I just started selling clearance items from our table on e onto eBay. Um, and that's how I started. That's how I bridged the gap from my online activity to and sneakers. Uh, before I had done online stuff before, but not with shoes. And this is where it started. Um, and then I kind of had the light bulb that like, well, I was paying, you know, a decent amount of eBay fees. They weren't that high back then, but I was paying, you know, some fees, but I always knew like when somebody asks somebody where you get something. And I noticed even with talking to customers, I'm like, where'd you get those? They're like, say, oh, I got them on eBay. Well, I knew that while that was great, that was great for eBay. That wasn't great for the seller because there's nobody, there's no recognition of who the, who sold you the, that product. And I guess maybe at 17 years old, I didn't understand everything of how hard it would be to brand yourself. But I also didn't have the fear of failure yet because I thought, well, shoot, anything I put my mind to has worked for me in my life. So if I just put my mind to this and I keep hustling at it, it'll work. And I just never thought that things not working would be an outcome. So I just kept working until they did. Um, but in 06 transition to blogging, um, I just really saw like, look, there's just, I think that I found that there was, I had more interest in the stories of shoes than actually like trying to be the barter and trader. You know, like I, I always felt like you can give more value when you're giving it away for free in terms in, in the form of information and media versus like you with a relationship in e-commerce, like you have to sell the customer the shoe, you get, you take their money and that's a different relationship you have with each person. Um, so I don't know. I just kind of, Especially when it's transition. not your product, especially when it's not your product as well, right? You're, when you're just, which when you're is, a middleman which, on that situation. Exactly. Which is why, like, you know, I had done retail um, for a while to get to that, but I sold retail in 14 and for a while I like regretted it because I missed like doing the, the retail part of the game. But like right now I would not want to be a retailer of what I call OPP, other people's product. Like if you rely on OPP, like, oh my gosh, your days are numbered your days are numbered because the DTC model is something that is going to just is, is what every producer of product is moving towards. So yeah. like if you're down with OPP, like you are, you're yeah, that's, it's not good for you. I love it. We were just, I was just talking about a friend of mine runs a, a frozen seafood business and, and he, I just was chatting with him last night about how much he, he subscribed to this newsletter. He started running some ads and they're just crushing, uh, you know, mm -hmm. this, the, where all these legacy businesses, you know, there's still so much room for them to adopt this D to C mindset. And it's going to oh be gosh, such a profound yes. change in the industry. A absolutely. And I, I think there's, there's a lot of people who made the baby steps, like they started selling through Amazon. And it's like, there are a lot of brands who are selling on Amazon that don't have to sell through Amazon. Just like I didn't have to sell through eBay. I said, Hey, look, I want the name recognition. I want the control and the, the relationship with the customer. So that's why I created my own thing. There are a lot of people and a lot of brands who are selling through Amazon who do not need to be. And I think you're going to see more and more adopt maybe the learning and lessons of what Amazon can do for them, but at least add it to the portfolio of building that brand. You know, Maybe you don't want to go away from Amazon, keep that business there. There's no reason. If you're crushing on Amazon, you should also be crushing out on DTC. Build your own brand and do it at the same time. And what we're seeing is there's a great correlation there between if you're pumping a bunch of money into ads, you're going to reap the benefit on, on Amazon as well, just from visibility, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It gives you that. It, it's, a, it's an opportunity for discovery and it's an opportunity to build your brand and awareness of it. Um, and then, you know, like, look, you'll be able to target, um, you know, Nice. We'll know, we'll know, you know, Google knows, Facebook knows, so they do.
Indeed. Okay. So back to, back to, I want to get a, a full picture of your business then too. So you, so you were saying around uh, 14, I think you said you got into a bit of retail. Can you talk, walk us through that and then end up with where you are in 2020 as a business model? Yeah. Yes. So, so started blogging 06 and just started building like audience rapidly. Um, Use a lot of what I learned with search engine optimization and adopting like social media strategy, social networking strategy rather um like we we're using myspace early on use twitter early on uh we joined instagram like maybe a couple of months after it launched um and we we always saw that like social media was allowing us to have a connection with the customer or sorry the the reader in a way that just a blog wouldn't so we always built that really close relationship and we built such a good relationship and such a foundation we were able to open a retail store brick and mortar in austin texas in 2010 um by 14 you know like there had been some things that had changed um not to throw any particular brands under the bus but like initially all the brands were cool with us having a media outlet and a retail store they were also cool with us you know a couple years later having e-commerce of these products and, but unfortunately they started to want to build their own dtc strategy and simultaneously there were other things that were happening and they didn't really like the idea of these people that had a you know, First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, also selling the brand's product. And there were there were like restrictions they were trying to put on us and how our blogging business operated because I had one brick and mortar store in Austin. I'm like, look, I'm not Foot Locker with 3000 stores here. I'm one store in Austin. You're not even giving me enough allocated pairs to sell to my own local audience, let alone my online audience. So they were so I actually got into not a good discussion with with the at the time, like head of sales. I even took it, an email up to Mark Parker, who was the CEO at the time. because so I'm like, I'm getting nowhere on this. This is frustrating me because they said, the guy suggested I could either just close the website and keep the store running. I'm like, you must be out of your mind if you're thinking I'm going <laughs> to shut down my internet property over one brick and mortar store in Austin, Texas, selling a product you supply me. I'm not stupid, dude. So it just I shows you the selling. rigidity of their mindset in a lot of ways, though, right? Like they're 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 trained to see that that retail thing as as the asset, the brick and mortar thing is the asset. Like, well, that's what you'd keep open because that's what our business has sort of been based on. And the same sort of inflexibility in not understanding that you're, that having like a prestige store in Austin, where you know, with your brand behind it, is only good for their brand. You'd think so. You know, it was frustrating because like the brands never understood us as an outlet for years, like. There were these media things, but they wouldn't treat us as being real media because we didn't have a print publication or we didn't have like a television show. Like we weren't real to them. And it wasn't until like I actually opened a brick and mortar store did we actually start getting invited to regular media things with different brands. It was like one of those things like you mean I had to op go back in time to open up something that's like old school that has nothing to do with media for then to you then see like oh, this actually is a legitimate thing. Um, but look, you, you can't fault, lots of companies don't see the forest for the trees as what's going on in the world, but that's what creates great opportunity at the same time. Um, but yeah, so by 14, ended up selling it and um, sold to another group and I don't have to work or have restrictions with it anymore. And it's been much, much better ever since. Nice. And, that, and one of the yeah. one of the things that you uh, you said earlier was that uh, you you prefer to tell the story of of a sneaker as opposed to being you know like like the middleman and and, and yeah. peddling other people's products. Uh, I'm curious 
what an you know what one of your favorite examples is of uh, of a great sneaker story? Oh boy, there's a lot. Um, I will go with one. I would say that um, a story that I really wanted to tell, and I referenced this product line a lot because you know there weren't a lot of stories about them at the time. Uh, was the line of Bo Jackson trainers, specifically the Air Trainer SC2. It was a shoe that had never been retro, never been brought back. I felt like Bo Jackson was this all things athlete, like a true definition of what is a pinnacle athlete. Yep. Um, An anomaly, a real anomaly, right? It, yeah. It's true anomaly. A guy yep. who had like, as a kid, I, 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 I there was something about Bo Jackson I really loved in that I loved all kinds of sports, even if I wasn't the best at any of them. I loved having that trunk in my room that had like a chest full of a baseball, a basketball, a football, you know, hockey sticks, like tennis rackets. Like I wanted to play all these different things. And here was Bo Jackson, who was exactly that guy who could do it all, right? Do everything. And he invented and had- sports marketing for him too, right? Like they, 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 I've watched a documentary on that. I'm sure that's part of the reason for your attraction as well, is that was like the beginning of streetwear in some ways, that Bo Nose campaign, essentially, the right? Bo Nose like- was a huge thing. I mean, this, this product category training was only a year or so old when you started this campaign of Bo Jackson, like the cross trainer was invented by Nike a year or two earlier. And now we have a huge like guy who's the face of this entire sports category. Like you don't have stuff happen that quickly. For millennials Um, that don't know, just just for the millennials that don't know Bo Jackson, he was a two sport athlete. He was playing, he was wrecking baseball. He was a defensive superstar. He was an offensive superstar. And he was also like a total powerhouse for the Raiders and the Kansas City Royals, I think, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. so. All the millennials will be—they're caught up now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, but I—I I mean, he was a great two-sport athlete too. Yeah. Um, and he even played basketball, I believe, um, at um, at Auburn as well for a bit. Yeah. Like, I mean, he just—I he, was just so talented. But so, yeah, that that would be an example of like telling a story behind a product um, where it wasn't available online. I had to piece together so many things, like you know, from bits and pieces of of like the shoes, I actually had the physical product. So I took studio shots of those myself. And then I sourced and scoured the internet for clippings in newspapers, in magazines. I even went onto eBay and bought old advertisements from ripped out of magazines to piece together and kind of journalistically put together everything that was when it was all just like bits and pieces scattered about the web and offline. So that that would be like an example of something I really love doing was telling a story. Very cool. And so now with your business as a full media empire, this massive social following, what, what break, break down your business at a, at a high level, like where, where's, is the revenue coming through ad revenue at this point, mainly then? We have multi channels of, of revenue. So we have, you know, on the website, website still does crazy traffic as much as like social is where our audience is. Like, I mean, we have four something million people on, on, uh, just on Instagram. Um, we still generate a ton of revenue off of the website and that's just from banner media and I guess, you know, retarget media uh, a bit too. But then the other thing we also generate a decent income off of is affiliates. Um, You know, we have a lot of people who are coming to pages that are optimized for, you know, where there's purchase intent, you know, it's purchase intent traffic. People are looking for certain specific shoes to buy and we are directing them to where they are available for sale. Um, other things we do is we have other ways of targeting people and communicating with them by social.
social, by email, by text message about when products are available for sale. Um, it's another revenue stream that we have. And then in addition to all that, we also have brand partnerships where we're creating content. Like we just launched a video series. First episode was earlier this week with Nike and Hibbit Sports uh, called Small Town Sneakerhead. And the idea of it was, you know, all the campaigns that you see for the most part up until this point showcase sneakerheads in these gigantically large cities like Chicago, New York, LA, um, you know, London, Tokyo kind of thing. And I'm like, I'm from, I'm, I was born in Fresno, California, nothing glamorous. Um, Hibbit Sports is in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, small town in the South. And they, their, their chain is primarily in small town America. Like they are not in cities, generally more than 30,000 people. They're in small towns. And I was like, look, you know, this is, I, I connected with the, I knew the guy who was in marketing at, at Hibbit for a while. And he's from a small town here in Texas. And, you know, we, we talk about kind of the, the unique characteristics of small town America that sometimes don't, sometimes don't get told. And then also too, there's this assumption that if you're from a small town, there's no way you could be in shoes. And like nice kicks is like clearly an example of, yes, you can be from a small town and love shoes. Uh, this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that. And so we were like, look, let's, let's do something that is just what people are not expecting. You know, if people are expecting something fine, it's just yet another thing. But we did this uh, video series with them and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm giving a long plug to one of our revenue streams, but we did this video for them um, and it was pilot just launched and uh, first of two episodes in the first run and hoping to, you know, see the traction continue to grow for it. And that comes together from you just sourcing that basically you, you sort of, was that your concept? Was that sort of like, you yeah, know, it was my concept. The, the yeah. name came to me. Um, I all credit to my uh, Claremont secondary uh, 12th grade English teacher, Mr. Stack, who taught, uh, talked, uh, taught me what an alliteration was. And ever since then, I have been hooked on alliteration. So small town sneakerhead was, yes, another, you know, uh, alliteration, just like throwback Thursday, release reminder, all these things that, you know, I've incorporated into nice kicks from the beginning. Um, so I love it. We we call it we have a we we resend an email on the weekend. We call it the weekend resend. So we we love using yeah. alliteration as well. Yeah. Uh that's so cool. The one thing I wanted to do, I have, I have a bunch of questions, but I I noticed that you actually you guys actually did a product collab. You did a product collab with, with is that true? You did a product collab with Reebok? I've done a bunch. Yeah. So I did I did them. My first one was with Ronnie Feig on uh two ASICs. We did an ASICs back in a Gel Light 3 back in 2007 or 8, I think it was the first one. Um, and then we had uh Follow-up was gray. We all we did a primarily red one in 08 and then uh, in 09 or 10, it was a, a like a soft gray. Uh, that was actually inspired by my 18% gray card that was in my photo studio. I'm like, you know what? Let me use a shoe as my gray card instead of an actual gray card. Um, and then we did projects with New Balance. We did three with them. Um, we did a 1500 for our five-year anniversary of the site. I did a... Uh, a 574 inspired by the um, Seattle Mariners, 96 Mariners, and then the uh, Grand Anne 1600, which was inspired by where I lived before I moved to Victoria, which is in Grenada, um, in the Caribbean. And around. we did a couple of vans and yeah, those I'm trying I, I know I'm forgetting something. But yeah. And what are the purpose with those? Are those are those they're revenue generating opportunities? They also raise your profile, they tie your brand through to these sneaker brands. Mm -hmm. Like they're 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 multifaceted, I guess, in in their value for you to do these. Yeah, I, I mean I haven't touched I haven't touched a, a brand project since the since the NMD. 
Uh, the NMD was created by a friend at Adidas. Um, but again, after I sold the retail group, the retail group has been doing those things. Um, I mean, I don't think that they do as much as they could, um, but I mean, I'm going to be critical of anything, um, but that I don't touch. Um, but the the thing is, is that yeah, the reason why we did them with the brand or the why I did them was that it was a way to tell a story on a product that you hadn't heard before, and sometimes either tying in something about the product or tying in nice kicks, um, like for example, the story with the 1500 was I wanted to take classic gray tones that new balance was famous for. Yep. And I also wanted to, you know, weave in a little bit of our DNA with the red, but there were other hidden cues throughout it. Like why we even selected that shoe to begin with um, was, it really came down to, it, it reminded me of this one of what I considered to be the greatest collaboration of all time, which was a collaboration between Mercedes Benz and Porsche. And that was the uh, 500E that they made in the mid nineties. And so I actually select that model because the, the 1500 is the only one with angular and boxy lines. All of their new balances have like curves and, and whatever on the, on the toe boxes and the panels. Uh, the 1500 has angular lines, very boxy. Um, it just sticks out from the rest of the, of their heritage lineup. So this was a way of, that was like a way of like kind of telling the story of that, that people might not have looked at before. One level deeper and, on that. Sorry, before before you jump in, KG. One level deeper on like what? Like, are you like are you doing this in Photoshop? Are you are you just kind of pulling swatches together and sending them to a designer to say incorporate this and see what it looks like? What is the actual process of actually? Because so, I, I I love yeah. shoes. I love silhouettes. I love I love this idea of boxy. You know the different you know advancements in shoes. I'm just interested mm -hmm. from someone that studied them since 2000. You know 2000 essentially. What goes into actually building these shoes? So it depends on which group it is, what leeway we have in terms of flexibility. Uh, New Balance is one of my favorite ones to work with because, you know, I saw the material room of all the different materials we could pull from. A lot of times you just get like colors that you get to play with, which mm -hmm. are never as exciting because you, you can, you're limited by color. Um, New Balance and Vans both, like I was able to, to source the materials and they had just all these great like available materials that we knew like, okay, in small run, we could pull this, we could pull that. And I just, I, I first have to think of the concept. Um, and then I'm usually thinking of colors. Um, I'm kind of like OCD about like color placement and balancing color on a product. I have like, a, I'm very anal about how you have to balance between the, from the lace to the actual outsole where the color gets placed you have to have a level representation through the product so it's not bottom heavy or top heavy with a color um so even when i'm thinking of colors i'm already thinking of the balance of how much goes where kind of thing um and then at that point then i'm going through the books of materials and finding the right ones that's so cool yeah that's awesome and um you know so it really occurs to me that it'd be a really powerful strategy for uh, a a brand to to create, um, you know, maybe a third party brand, or even just partnering with uh, with someone like Nice Kicks or um, creating their own media arm. And you you have uh, a distinct advantage in that. I mean, well, a you you've created amazing content for so long, and you started back in two thousand six when the internet was, you know, obviously much younger. I'm wondering what advice you'd give to uh, to someone who wanted to create a similar. Uh, media company tiers in 2000, uh, in 2020? 
it's going to be really tough to create something just from the standpoint of the revenue is not easy to come by, not as easy as it once was, especially if you're starting from scratch, unless you are getting great web presence, you know, it monetizing on social is not as easy as people think, you know, it's, it, it, it has a lot of challenges. Um, unfortunately, the way the business models are is that the, the producers aren't compensated for the great work. You know, we have, we have posts that are getting, getting seen by millions of people. We don't get a thing out of it. You know, we are, we are generating the content that people are sharing to hundred thousand of their friends on a platform, like sharing it, saying it's so good. They got to post it and send it to their friends and we get no compensation for it. Uh, the only thing we get is just more, you know, more um, algorithm juice to help our future content. Um, but it takes us to actually go offline to then go sell it into a partner to do a project. Um, so that's the one great thing about the web for us. You know, maybe it's just because I was born with web and grew up with web that I still see through the lens of web on a lot of stuff. Um, but I think that if you're building content, I think you've got to be thinking about what products are in the wheelhouse that you can be promoting with the content. Um, we are actually starting on building some DTC brands that will be woven into our, into our stuff because like, we're like, look, if we can't get, you know, X, Y, Z, um, you know, company to spend appropriately for us to promote their product or give us the creative freedom to actually do what we need to do to make this product hit. Look, it's easy to create a white label solution to almost anything now. Like it's never been easier. So like for, there are a couple of products that we're like, look, they're not gonna, they're not gonna support them. We're just gonna have to, we'll, we have to seriously consider like we build a product that will then be a competitor to theirs. But it's like, we want to build a, we're just building our own thing to push in through DTC. Um, I love it. So it's that's, like Amazon that's what Light, I think in a way. We, yeah, I mean, in a way it is. I mean, I think that like there are a lot of publishers that have had to, you know, rely on themselves for revenue streams. I mean, they've had to for a while, especially, you know, like with COVID that happened, this really accelerated um, the downfall of some media publications that relied too heavily on premium ad spends or mm. offline activations that were overvalued you know, all of a sudden those things come out of the, out of the equation. You know, we, we saw competitors that were shedding 25 and 35% of their workforce, you know, a couple of weeks into the crisis. And we, we're the opposite. Like we grew during COVID, like, because we didn't rely on that. And we had a lean remotely based structure. So, you know, I think that for a publisher, if they're starting out thinking, think about like, what are some things, even if they're not self-branded, they are like, you know, house branded items that you can use this, you can push to the audience. The audience is the value. It's not the name of your publication. It's the audience that's where the value is. Now, are you talking about making additional, are these Nice Kicks branded products or are these I going to be? I wouldn't brand it as Nice Kicks. No, I'd put oh, it as something else. 
just like all. And so this is my next question. Like how, you know, we're, we're big fans of you know, big fans of Vessi in Vancouver, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Allbirds, all these sort of like D to C shoe brands, for instance. Mm-hmm. But it's I'm wondering, do you think like at what point, what would it take to start to have conversations on nice kicks about some of these these brands that don't that don't meet the bar. I was thinking about the shoe industry and it's like these brands have been around for 50, 60 years. You know, like are there are there other brands that do enter the conversation that we just don't hear about? Uh, and and w- what does that look like? like? I think the thing that's held back a lot of brands and a lot of people in foot, or a lot of footwear brands from taking off, especially in DTC, is that it's a really, really cost prohibitive to start a footwear brand. Like mm-hmm. a good footwear brand is not cheap to build. But there's another part that comes along with it, which is that a lot of DTC companies have been younger, forward-thinking individuals. And if you're younger and forward-thinking, you also probably don't have decades of experience in footwear. If this is an industry you need a lot of, you need years in it. It's not something that you can come in and appropriate lessons you learned from, from tech and easily make it into a DTC shoe brand. Um, you know, the ones that have had the greatest success, like Allbirds, it's really just a super simple product with no technical value. I mean, it is a, a wool sock on a soft EVA outsole. Yeah. Um, it's really the, it's a simpler Nike Roshi is really what it is. Um, and they, you know, they had some great marketing strategy. They, they tied it in with, you know, the tech scene in a very good way early on. It gave it this aspirational like thing as well as being sustainable. So check that box. Um, but kind of like shoes for people that don't want to think about shoes is sort of, I think a, a lot of that, that mark. It's just like, yeah, sure that you put them on your feet. They look nice. They work well, but this, the sneaker market is all about the flourishes and the details and the, you know, those interesting things that take it to that next level. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a, a podcast I listened to just recently and um, uh, my friend had this guest on, he talked about the importance of you need to have either a product that is solves a problem or is aspirational. And it's funny because like Allbirds, I think their marketing positioning made it aspirational, but the problem they solved is that it's so bloody easy and you need absolutely no effort to put into this product that anybody can just wear it because whatever reason, yeah. um, you know, like I sure I'm not, I'm not knocking people who wear Allbirds, but like, it's not a do where it's like a highly sophisticated fashion look we all know that so i was i was thinking Um, like the last brand that tried to move in was that big baller brand and and he did that exact thing where he didn't have shoe experience didn't have a brand name didn't have an athlete to really bank on in his first year essentially no and they've closed shop i think now eh? which one uh big baller brand oh big baller brand i mean yeah that's the 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 first shoe that came out like was a made in a North China, like really low grade quality factory. That's why Lonzo wasn't playing in the shoe. He couldn't play in it. It was so terribly made. Um, and from my, from what I've heard, the Lakers actually stepped in and said, look, we've, we're investing a lot in this guy. You, you know, I, this is, this is cool. You're trying to build your own thing, but like, we're not losing our asset over you trying to make a shoe brand. Um, so that's why he wasn't able to play in them, killing his feet. Um, they did do something with, um, with brand black which i thought was a great move but unfortunately there were other things at play that you know prevented that thing from ever really taking off the way it could have it could have been a disruptor for sure in the business if they came in and they made it a hundred dollars dtc which i thought they were going to possibly go that way they Mm -hmm. made that shoe a hundred dollars dtc 
I would have been sweating buckets if I was Foot Locker or any other like big retailer of basketball product to young people because like at that time Lonzo was hot with young kids Lamelo was like the Justin Bieber of basketball um you know like this was they had that opportunity DTC would have been fantastic if they had the price point right and a good product interesting good learning just wanted to just wanted to pop in with uh with a question from one of our members Sierra uh she asks I'm curious about how Nice Kicks manages social media on a global scale since streetwear and sneaker culture is extremely global how does Nice Kicks consider this when putting out content, or is it assumed that this group of consumers are already knowledgeable? So it, it, that does present prevent you know present some challenges. Like so, the United States is our largest market, but it's funny it's not by much. Um, we I remember looking and it was I, I have to take a look at the analytics again, but on the country report, at one point we were only like. 63% America, 63% US. Um, and then the second largest country was at that time when I did the screenshot was Uzbekistan. And I'm like, it's not Uzbekistan. I'm like, and then I look at the other ones like Tajikistan. All right, Russia, mm, we have some Russian followers, but I'm like, mm -mm, those are VPNs. China's our number two market. Mm. People in China are, China is our number two market. On, on nice kicks and the it's it's just that instagram is banned in china so it doesn't show up as though our followers are from china they're using vpns from all over the world and that's why you have uzbekistan showing up as your number two country um so we're very aware of this uh we're very aware of what is going on in china um you know we keep our keep a close eye on it um, for us, though, it's really difficult to tailor our content towards China when we are speaking from the lens of nice kicks in the United States. Um, what we we are aware of Chinese trends, but we can't speak to China directly because that would change our voice and our position. Um, we know that people from around the world look at American trends to look for American trends. They also follow european-based outlets because they're looking for european-based voice so like while being aware of where a lot of our audience is is important we can't let that detract us and our and how our brand shows up um so that's that's how we have to handle some, something like this because they're coming to you for your voice and you can't you can't start speaking in a you know european voice or you can't start well, talking yeah, about lecoq sportif I mean or I can't start Lacoste. talking about like, yeah, I can't go into like, I'm not going to, we can't post Balenciaga runway shows because that's not what we do. You know, yeah. like, yeah, there's an audience who might want that, but it's like quality content is defined by what people are expecting from you. It's not, there's no like definition of quality. It's what are people expecting from you? Are you delivering on your expectations? That's quality content. And so if you have this voice, you have to keep that voice. Like, can you alter and shift? Of course, but like, you have to give people what they're looking for. So, so here's a question about your team. Then, how do you get how how like first of all, how big is your team at this point? And then, what like what have you done to make sure that if you've got a staff of however many writers, that they really understand and speak in your voice? Is that is that a vetting process that you do as you bring people in, or is it just a part of maturation as they grow with you? Or how does that work? It, we do have like a great 
system that we have now. Um, we, uh, you know, a creative director, Gabe Ocean, has been with me. He worked with me a couple years back in, gosh, 2012, 2011, 2012, and a little 2013, I believe. And then he rejoined me in 2018, but he ascended to this position here in like February or March of this year, right when COVID hit. And we built a new plan and we really built this new, we have multiple layers of where people work up into the different levels. And it goes from creative director to social social producer and even down. And you know, everybody is learning the system and they're learning the voice by what their tasks are. And as they graduate, they get more and more open to it. They learn as they go. Um, on the web side of things, yeah, we have standards for a lot of that stuff. You know, we have very simple, like, you know, like we have structure as to how we want things showing up. We have structure on how things are linked. We have structure on every little thing so that we have this consistency um, throughout the site. Um, but yeah, and to answer your question about the, the team size, like I honestly, I haven't done headcount in a while, but it's probably only six or seven people, including freelance contributors. Um, we're a very small team. Um, we have we have a very you know a manageable size. I think I've had a large team before. I had more than twenty five employees at one time. And I freaking hated it. It was so freaking large. Um, I didn't even I, like it dawned on me. I'm like I, I I can't spend you know much time with the with my different team members. Like yeah, I know like you you structure an organization and whatnot, but I was like this is a lot of folks. Uh, we had like 25 or 26 people. So I like staying small. I prefer it. It's the beauty of a content operation. And we're, we're finding that as well is that you, you can be one to many on such a inordinate scale that, that, that it's, it's, it's really advantageous. It's, I would like, I would much rather stay small stay focused and stay in our lane at what we do. Um, we have cut back so much on like the dreams of what we want to do. It's like, no, we don't need to do this. We don't need to try to recreate some video success we had on YouTube in 2013, 14. Like, no, like, yeah. no, we will do video in a different way. We, and we'll do them by a project, not create a division of a company to handle it. Like we will do it piece by piece and slowly grow things out. And if it works for us and it, it, it accomplishes what we were looking for, then perhaps we add more to it. But you know, we, we really know what our, what we're strongest at at our core and we focus our energy and effort on, on that first. And then if there's space, we try out other little projects on the side. Nice. Okay, cool. So we've teased this a lot. I don't, I, and I don't know how, uh, how many, I bet you have some opinions because you seem like you've got, you've got a lot of awesome opinions, but I was really blown away three weeks ago, I guess, when I saw that Supreme had been acquired for $2 billion by the company that had also acquired Vans and a bunch of other, other things. And instantly my mind started going to, okay, how is a brand that has limited its supply and made so much money uh, by limiting its supply going to be taken over by this multinational conglomerate and, and how are they going to achieve their goal? with that brand. Uh, and then, then some Black Friday screenshots shots started coming in. And my these friends that were posting these million-dollar screenshots who are running these agencies. And I realized they're using something that I've just learned more recently about called the drop model. This drops, not drop shipping, but this idea of like focused product drops where they're events rather than just ads. It's like these whole events that people are clamoring for. And it and it kind of got into my mind that maybe that would be what Supreme would do. They just have to really double down on drops, start trying to do billion-dollar drops or something like that, but still focus on. Mm -hmm 
on that exclusivity and limited availability. That was my thinking on that. What, what, where, where, what do you think about this acquisition? I think it is a fantastic purchase by VF. Fantastic. And I was waiting for who was going to buy them. I knew somebody big would buy them, but I knew it would have to be somebody who would understand the opportunity and properly scale it out. There are a couple things in, in America that are selling for like just crazy dollars on this drop model. Okay. One of them we know is Supreme. There's another one off white. There's Yeezy 350s and there's Jordan ones. They're not, take a look around. It's not because it's selling here in the United States. It's because it's the hottest shit in China right now. So what I am pretty sure we're going to see, and I saw the announcement, the plan is to scale up retail. China, uh, Supreme doesn't have presence in China on the retail side. And there's this great benefit that you can have because there is this walled off communication of stuff. You can do something in China and it has absolutely no impact on what's going on in America. Now, a lot of people in China pay, look to see what's going on in America, but it doesn't go the other way. It doesn't go the other way the same, to the same degree. No. Um, and I think that like what you're going to see is you will see a lot of value you know, created for VF by opening and having a presence in China. And I think honestly, like if they play this thing, right, they're going to stay true to their brand, but if they start doing projects with up and coming Chinese artists, up and coming Chinese, you know, skaters, like if they take that brand ethos and then do it in the right way in China, they have the opportunity to build what could be like, I mean, a monolithic brand in China because there haven't been a lot of companies that have come to China from, you know, America and done it well, where they pay respect the right way and help it grow because China is, is at this point, like, yes, a lot of people in China like what's going on in America, but there is this growing rising interest in, you know, Chinese identity. And I think Supreme, if they, you know, and I, I, I really hope that VF does this right. They have the opportunity to create like the, you know, a, such an important brand to identity of Chinese youth. That could go back the other way, even potentially, you know what I mean? That could, it, you know, if, if they do it right, it could become relevant in America more so like oh, one, already 1, like Japanese stuff is already hyper relevant, right? Like the, the, the Japanese characters on human race shoes or, you know, all, all these things like NMDs are seemed sort of typically Japanese in a way that people, people kind of gravitate towards as well. So I feel like China has an opportunity here. Also too. I mean, like America's not the America from, from 40 years ago, like American youth today have like such an interest in things that aren't from here. I mean, yep. just take a look at in, in sports. One of the most popular sports for, for younger people, younger professionals is MLS. Like you would have never thought that before. Like yep. Americans in soccer? No. I mean, that, that league struggled for years. Yep. And no, and people were convinced this was not going to work. But more and more Americans are taking more and more interest in things outside of America. Thank you, Internet. Um, you know, they had the ability to get a little taste online. And then when you, you know, some people latch onto stuff and want more of it. I think that, I think that there see a lot more cultural, you know, ping pong going back and forth of ideas between China and the United States in years to come. I think that there's just no way it's going to become less, honestly. 
it reminds me of Firefly. Watch watching the the science fiction show Firefly and how the how their vision of the culture is one that's like really merged between East and West, between China and America. And I I could see I could see that coming in the coming decades. Mm-hmm. Yep. Here's a here's another question from uh, one of our uh, members, Mike. Uh, how do you feel about the sneaker resale market and hyped up sneaker drops that are going for thousands of dollars? Well, I think that there's, I mean, they're going for thousands of dollars because somebody's paying for paying the thousands of dollars. When there's somebody who's not paying for thousands of dollars, uh, what do you do? Um, the people who are buying that shoe, they're not paying box price ever. You know, they're if they're buying it, if their transaction, if their credit card swipes it at that price, there are other fees they already have built into that. Are they using a bot? Okay, that costs money. Are they using servers and proxies? Those cost money. Um, okay, let's say they're doing it offline. Are they buying it from a brick and mortar store who's backdooring it? You better believe he's not paying retail. He's paying more than retail. So it has created this new economy of shoes um, where the the price it might be selling for X that just seems so high. And you think that, that like the seller is on the take for just an astronomical amount, but like right out of the gate, he's paying a bunch in selling fees to the marketplaces and wherever they're selling. Um, and then on down the line, just the cost of actually getting a hold of the product all gets built into it. The thing is, is that everything works until it doesn't. And I've seen lots of crazy rises in price before. And it, they don't last forever. Like there's, there, you know, Nike SB was a great example of that. I mean, now recently Nike SBs are selling for great amounts of money, but oh my God, five years ago, you can give them away. You had people who bought at 2005, 2006, like peak pricing and their SBs were selling for less than what they paid, you know, 10 years prior. Like that can happen again easily. I mean, to boost, it's such an interesting market. I remember, you know, Adidas Boost were this like transcendent thing. Everyone needed a boost. They had this cross-cultural appeal. Then they just, they mix up their formula. And all of a sudden, like, I haven't heard anyone talk about boost in a year and a half. You know? I was at Dick's yesterday and I saw that they added boost to an alpha like training shoe. And it used to be like, if you had boost in the midsole, that shoe was selling. Yep. It, and, it, you know, like it was either going to sell for retail price or, you know, like, it was going to sell for it was going to sell, but I remember going to like a like a, a down channel store like rural Kentucky last year, and seeing a table full of Boost shoes, basketball shoes for like fifteen and twenty dollars. And I always look whenever you go to those down channel retailers, and you see like what's on the clearance, like that tells you that reflects a lot of where a brand is or a technology or style is, and like. When you see that, it's like, oh boy, it's really hit it. Like it's, it's, it's done. Um, people I just, so many- I mean, it doesn't take away from how great Boost is. Like I still love the feel of Adidas Boost. I still think it's great technology, but you know, I think that they were able to capitalize for a while off of the hard accessibility of it. And, but then once you make it widely available and you can always get it, then well, of course it's not going to sell out as fast. So it's interesting. Which are the big? So, f- first of all, I I want to see your shoe your shoe wheel at some point. You got to send me a picture of your shoe wall. I want to know what oh your God. grails are, and I want to know. I just what's your take on like the power players in twenty? Who who has the biggest room to grow among the big players in sneakers in twenty twenty one? Like Nike is the incumbent. Nike is number one with a bullet. No one's touching them, basically. And Adidas is challenging there. Give me give me the landscape. So my wheel is extremely small. 
Um, I actually did an interview just like last week and they asked me like, what are your top five shoes? Can you bring them on the show? And I was like, oh boy. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll grab five. Um, I only have, I at one time had 1800 pairs of shoes today. I don't even have 18 pairs of shoes. I purged and have cut back so much. The shoes I'm wearing right now are my famous Jordan one sales that I bought on release date in August of 2017. I've worn them. 400 something times at least. I mean, I wear them almost every day. Um, and I, I only have like m- maybe three pairs of casual shoes. I have shoes I wear in the gym. I have shoes for spin class. And I have like a couple shoes that if I'm hiking or, you know, in treacherous weather, they'll come out. But nice. yeah, I'm a reformed sneaker addict. Um, then that. the, but in terms of brands that I think are going to come through, I think that who is, what it really comes down to is who is delivering value to consumers. And this is going like, this is going to feel like a lot like 08, 09, I think in the, in the coming year, the brands that are going to win are the ones who are delivering value because value is going to be very important, very soon um, for an unfortunate reason. You know, like I really do think we're going to see, a, you know, some shakeups in, economically. And it's yeah. just inevitable. Um, and people, whenever there's that shakeup, your, you know, inelastic purchases are the first ones that get questioned. So I think that you will see people who are going to be buying much more for purpose and value than for Instagram likes or what they think is going to make them more famous or something. I don't know. But like, I see that New Balance is going to, I think New Balance will continue to grow. Um, They, they make a good product that's comfortable that you can wear. Um, it's easy to wear. It's versatile. I think people are going to look for versatility. I think you'll see leather, like white leather and leather shoes, like having an, a, you know, a, a good uptick in the, in the next year. We've, we've seen the, fa- the fashion trend. You like always look at denim. Denim tells you where things are going. Um, I think you're going to see like, um, the white leather, uh, low, low top basketball, uh, from like late eighties being a, a good segment of the category. Um, and then um, I think Nike will still do well in some categories. I think performance basketball is going to have a really rough time uh, for all brands in the, in, in the coming years. Um, just this past, like right now, like the, the primary consumer of performance basketball shoes are kids who play basketball recreationally. And it's like, they can't go to the gym and play basketball right now. You know, like that's yeah. just not a thing. And you know, that's, that's just going to, that's going to be hard on that category. And their ratings are down uh, overall. The NBA's ratings are down as well. So it's all, I, I could see it really kind of cascading and, and disposable income in that, in that section of the populace, you know, could be harder and harder to come by if, if the economy continues to get worse. Yeah. And I think basketball was overvalued. I mean, when I saw like some of these contracts that the companies were signing with these guys, like, I know there's a lot of value to having a LeBron James that halos outside of just his shoes, but there is such thing as overpaying guys because they don't actually deliver the brand value back to you. For Kyrie's not. Kyrie Irving is certainly his shoes probably aren't right now, right? Well, Kyrie's shoes are like the top selling shoes amongst kids, huh. but like, at, but does Kyrie add a, as much value to the brand as as others? I mean, I would say he's probably one who they're getting more value from, but they're. There are other deals where I'm like, I don't think they're seeing the return on investment that they want with this. Yeah. Um, but time will tell. Time will tell. Kyrie's a flat earther, so that helps his profile, I guess. Uh- <laughs>
This is super interesting. I could go on for hours about shoes and things like that. Uh, we had one more question. KG dug up an interesting factoid. We wanted to get into some some aspects of your entrepreneurship. Yeah, well, um, damn, I'm conflicted because Sierra has a question as well. So let's let's um, we'll uh, do that one really fast. So she asks, uh, what opportunities do consumer trends towards more sustainable practices open for the sneaker industry? Oh boy. Sustainability and sneakers are things people don't want to put in the same sentence because our industry is anything but that. Um, it is a dirty damn business. Unfortunately, it is. Like, there's just no way to cut around it. Like, fashion is bad. Footwear is bad. Like, it's it's bad, bad. Uh, for years, it has used harmful solvents. Um, it's used not very good labor practices. So many of the shoes were, were handmade, hand-sewn, like... This is taking human time to do, you know, only the advent of like those knitting looms, like, and, and the sock knit uppers, have you now had shoes where you can mass produce something where you don't have to like have all the waste that you once did. And you also don't have to have all the hand labor involved. Um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity with it. Um, I, I like that. I've seen a few brands do where they have the recycle program where you send the shoes back and I saw one, I can't remember who it was that I saw. They actually took them back and they then cleaned them up and then donated them to somebody who would need them. And I thought that was a great process. Um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity in the category because it is so bad. Um, and I think it would be, I think that like Allbirds got a lot off of their sustainability, you know, plugs saying, you know, the how carbon neutral they were, even though they were buying their own carbon offsets to, to get it. Like, um, which I'm personally, I'm just not a fan of. I think you can fuzz math however you want, but like, I think that sustainability will be a matter. It will be an important thing in the future. Nice. Awesome. And I, uh, we're, we're really running out of time here, but I, I, something that I think is, you know, really, uh, impressive about you. I was, I was stalking you as I, as I do many guests. Um, you you um you used to weigh quite a bit more and and oh, yeah. i was and i was um you know up to the tune of based on your post about 140 pounds and um and one of the things you said was that you were you were just someone who wanted to make a change and you kept going um which made me curious about um what was going through your mind cuz you usually the keeping going is the hard thing um mm -hmm. and so i'm wondering if you could just take us there um, and, and, and what kept you going? And then we can, we can wrap up. I don't know how, no one ever taught me, told me I had to figure all this stuff out on my own. Never had nutritionists, never had a trainer, never had anything. Um, I had to learn it all on my own. But one of the things I learned that I think be, has become such an incredible value to me through the whole process was learning how to look in the mirror and envision and manifest what you're after. And it's crazy because the vision I used to see myself in the mirror and how, what I was going to look like, I look better than that now, but it was the constant readjusting of what I saw, what I was going after. Um, there are, there are still things that are in my mind when I train and when I work that I'm looking for, that I am chasing, that I'm going, working towards. Um, and I'm, I'm regularly updating those. 
Um, I built a plan for myself once about like, you know, kind of a timeline milestone of like how much, what weight I wanted to be at at certain months. And that was a goal, but I always like, I always made sure that if I wasn't meeting a goal, I would adjust my timeline because I didn't want to, I didn't want any reason to give up. And I think that's something that I think anybody who's going through a change has to do is to be compassionate enough to yourself to know that just because you don't meet a deadline means you quit. It means you just readjust your calendar. You readjust your schedule and keep going. Um, a common question I was asked um, was like, what is your goal weight? And um, I never had one, to be honest. Um, I never had one. I gave, you know, a couple of times I told people like a, a number was a lie. I didn't have a goal weight because I don't know what it is. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I'll finish. I have dreams of things I want to accomplish, but they're not tied to a metric like a scale. Um, and I think that, but the most important thing to answer your question was just envisioning what I want and just constantly reminding myself of what I'm working towards. Love it. Awesome. Fantastic, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on the D2C podcast today. I think, uh, yeah, lots of information here that was good. Uh, I, I look forward to kind of keeping in touch and, uh, and hearing about how nice kicks develops. Do you have any big plans for 2021? Man, you know, just day by day, got a lot to do and, uh, just enjoying it. But yeah, we have, we have some video projects that we're excited for. Uh, we have some technology things that we'll be, we'll be, uh, working on, uh, heavily. Um, but other than that, just enjoying each day as they come in. Love it. Okay. Awesome. If you want to get in touch with nice kicks, you can go to nicekicks.com. I don't know if you have a contact form there. Is there any way people can send you a note on, are you active on Twitter or, or anything like that? Uh, I'm not, uh, just DM me at Matt half Hill, um, on Instagram. It's the best way to get in touch with me. Nice. He's a good follow. So is nice kicks. If you're into shoes. Uh, so thanks again and we'll uh, see you soon. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Matt. See you, Matt. See ya.